rest of us, we're going to jump right in here to uh, a passage that comes in, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, uh, it's a letter, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was trying to figure out what did life look like. They had seen and they had believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he had ascended into heaven, and so now what? Now what? So we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. You can follow along in your bulletins or, or in the Bible if you have one. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Yep, there it is. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to, the, belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, as we read these words and as we think of the men and women who uh, gathered around together, Lord, who gathered on a Resurrection Sunday to, to read and to reflect, to hear the word that your spirit would bring to them from the Apostle Paul, Lord, I pray that that spirit would illumine this text in our hearts and in our minds and, God, in our lives, that we might know you better. God, and that we might be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember uh, when I was a kid, and I must have been pretty young because I, I have very, very like 
faint memories. You know how some memories from your early childhood, you just remember a couple details, but you don't remember the story. But I remember being at, uh, I believe it was like a, a alternative Halloween kind of thing at, at a church that one of our neighbors went to, and so we went with them. And uh, the, the event, though, was... Um, it was meant to convey the seriousness of eternal destinies, right? And so there was, there was a room uh, that I remember going into, and they had put the heat all the way up to whatever, as probably as hot as the furnace would go in the room, right? And this was the, this was the hell room, right? It was the room with, with uh, people portraying that they were, were living in hell and in agony, and there, I think that there was even a... a a, a devil character lined up in there. Then you went, and as you walked through, and, and I remember going into this room, and it was obviously the temperature had dropped, and, and uh, going from, from the terror of, of the hell room into the, uh, into the, the cool but like uh, nauseating smell of the perfume that they used to make heaven feel like heaven, right? And this is just a little kid. I don't remember the story. I don't remember the church. I just remember this terror and then feeling like I was getting sick to my stomach from the perfume that was in the, the heaven room. Uh, and then the third thing I remember is that somehow I left with a goldfish in a bag at the end of the night, right? <laughs> I guess to teach us uh, our own mortality, right, at the inevitable death of, of said goldfish. Right, but I, I remember uh, I grew up in the church, and, 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 but I remember leaving that night, and I think I left with a little different uh, heart place than the, than the creators of that space had hoped, right? They hoped to portray the horror of hell and the glory of heaven, that it would, it would strike me in my desire to be with Christ in heaven. But as I thought about that day, you know, and as I'm sure as my parents were, were prompting and prodding me on, on the way home, and they talked about how, how Jesus could come back at any moment, right? It could be tomorrow, it, it, could be, it could be tonight, it could be before we even get home, right? And I remember the, the nauseating smell and the terror of hell and thinking, I hope not, right? I hope it's not like that. Dread. I would use the word dread, maybe, to describe the conception of, of those early years of understanding what it is that the Scripture tells us about what happens on that last day when Christ returns and, and the dead are resurrected and they go to judgment before God and each man, it says, is to give an account of, of their life before God Almighty. And in those early years, that, that the, the word dread maybe described it most. It was like you had two bad options and you chose the least bad of the, the two options that were put in front of you. But as we come to this text, and, and last week we talked exactly of this, of the resurrection of the dead. And, and, Paul, and Paul goes on to describe this day of the Lord and he, he reflects on it, but, but his word is not dread. Instead, he, he insists that there's a different kind of response that we should have, a different sort of, of way that we should be processing this coming day, the day of the Lord, right? And I'm going to suggest to you 
that that his uh, word, his word choice. He doesn't use the word, but I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize what I think his his disposition is. Is that it's uh, it's not dread, but it's anticipation. It's not that we dread the day of the coming of our Lord, but that we anticipate it. Right? And, and uh, well, let me dive in and, and, and we'll talk about it. Right? At the beginning of the passage, though, you can uh, find kind of our, uh, maybe an excuse, if you will, for dread. An excuse, if you will, for us thinking negatively of this day because the first two things that Paul describes this day of the Lord is coming is he says it comes like a thief in the night, right? And, and I don't know about you, but that's not exactly a positive metaphor to be using, right? You do dread a, a thief that breaks into your house at night who, who startles you when you think you are safe and secure where there's peace and security and, and a robber breaks in. Well, that's kind of a dreadful metaphor, isn't it? And then he goes on, maybe if you maybe you'll like this one better, right? He says, it'll come upon you like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. I admittedly have not ever experienced these pains, right? But I've watched them and they're not exactly the most pleasant of scenarios, right? So maybe we're excused for our, our sense of dread, the, the, the sense of, of uh, at least a lack of enthusiasm, let's put it that way, for the coming of Christ, for the coming when we would stand before God, because it makes it very clear, right, that this is not a good day for everyone. The Bible is, from cover to cover, quite uh, confident of, of this one fact, right? That those who have no desire to be with Christ, that those who, who have no desire to be with Christ in this life, to know him, to, to understand him, who have no desire to, to find their shelter in him, they will not just be with him, not in this life, but they won't be with him in the next. They've convinced their brains, right? They've convinced themselves that they have no need of Jesus. And so when the reality of Jesus as king finds them, it finds them unprepared. It finds them in alert. It finds them in a sense of distress. But Paul is, is very clear that this is not your story, right? He says, but you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. He says that, the, uh, that your sins ought not to be the dread of the thief. It ought not to be the dread of, of labor pains. But your response ought to be as people who see this coming, who understand what's down the line. At the very least, for those of you in this room, it, it, it is at the, at the very least we can say that it ought not be for you, right? Because the message that's been declared to the Thessalonians is a message that is declared to each and every person. Every person who finds themselves that they don't stack up, that they don't live up to, to the life of Christ. To everyone who has regrets, to everyone who has guilt, to everyone who has fear. 
the message of a God who loves you, not because, uh, not in spite of your sin, but because of your sin, in your sin, in your uh, drunkenness, if we use the next metaphor, Christ offers hope. You see, as believers, sometimes when we think about the coming of Christ, because the, the, the way that sin wears on us, the way our guilt and our fear weigh on us, we approach that day as if we're approaching our judgment day, as if we're approaching the day of the sentencing. But the scripture, the, the stories that the scripture tells us, it, it inverts it. It says that we all stand condemned, right? That this day is not a day of our damnation. This is a day of our pardon. I don't know if they have like a, I don't think when there's a part, you know, a, a presidential pardon, there's no court date that follows that. Maybe somebody can tell me if they're wrong, right? But if you could picture, we dread going, the, the coming of Christ because we dread going to court, right? But what we should do is we should look at that day and we should see that this is the day of our greatest freedom. When what Christ has done for us is, is not just a, a declaration, but it is a lived reality. That this, these verses that it says here uh, in verse 9 and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we dread the coming of our Lord because we still often uh, are so isolated from this exact phrase, right? That... The, through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ who died, who died so that his blood could pay for our sins, who rose to new life so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The story, the picture here, it, it talks of someone sleeping or, or someone being drunk. And, and if you look at it, it's, it's not a story of, uh, it's not so much a, a message about alcohol use here, right? He's comparing the drunk and to the person who's sleeping for the same purpose, right? That, that they're not aware of what's going on around them, right? Whether you are asleep or whether you are drunk, you are ill-prepared to, to go on a trip, right? If we use the word anticipation, maybe uh, going on vacation is, is the best kind of mind picture that we can do. It's, it's an excitement of what's coming but it's an excitement that demands a, a level of preparation, right? You, you pack your bags, you, uh, you line up your hotel room, you reserve the rental car, you, you do all of the things that you are supposed to do, but you do it out of excitement and, and anticipation. And he says that, that you Thessalonians, you Christians, uh, you can, if you don't remember... If you don't understand the story and the work of what Jesus has done for you, if you don't remember the resurrection, you are going to go forth to that day with a sense of dread because you are like a drunk person trying to pack. A drunk person who's trying to hobble together the, the, the kids' pool floaties and, and to put gas in the car and to, uh, to do all of the things, right? That you could be just as unprepared and just as caught off guard because you're isolated from the promise that it's not up to you, that there is a salvation and a hope that's been given you, and that that guilt and the fear that you feel of coming before God is not because of, of uh, the word that God has given you, it's because of the word that the devil has given you. 
and see if he can keep you feeling guilty, if he can keep you feeling shameful, if he can keep you hidden from the story of Christ and his coming, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return to earth. If he can keep you in guilt or fear, then he will keep you from seeing the promise that comes to us here, that whether we are awake or asleep, that we can be with him. But there's another thing that also works, and, and it's kind of the other spectrum. It's, it's a dread of even talking about this, right? It's a dread of even talking about the last day. It feels so distant. It can feel so like separated from our day-to-day lives. It can even feel like it's a strange add-on to our day-to-day faith, right? There's a, a level of, of apathy or ambivalence or indifference that can come upon us when the coming of Jesus is just, it's the least bad of the two options, right? Well, when Paul reflects on the gospel, when Paul reflects on, on how these people are to live and, and what is to move them and what is to shape them, it is exactly this, that there would know who Jesus was, that they would know what Jesus accomplished when he came, and that they would see the rest of their lives in that light, that they would not dread the day because they understand what has happened. This past week, we uh, uh, celebrated or, or remembered the, the 70th, 75th anniversary of, of D-Day, right? This invasion in World War II of, of the Normandy beaches. And it's an old, it's a classic old pastor's uh, illustration to talk about the, the work of Christ. Because you, 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 there's something that tangibly was different before that day and after that day, right? In that day, uh, if you were a, a, before that day, if you were a soldier and the thought came to you of, of being on the streets of Berlin, it either seemed impossible or it seemed like a death wish, Right? To be in Berlin, to be in the center of, of the Nazi German powers, it was, was a death wish. It was something you dreaded and hated. But something happened after that D-Day where now going to Berlin became a, a rallying cry, right? Where all of a sudden the decisive act of the war, the, the, the decisive shift of power that occurred on that day led those soldiers to understand that they would inevitably win, right? That there was, in between those two days, between D-Day and the VE day, there would be the resolution of their problem. And so instead of the dread of Berlin, it led to the anticipation of the day when freedom would be found in Europe. Right? But there's uh, another reality, right? That if you live in between those days, you see some of the bloodiest battles that were fought, right? You heard a, a decisive and clear uh, victory on D-Day, the kind of victory that we see in Jesus' earthly ministry and his death and resurrection. It all but guarantees, it all, well, no, it does guarantee. <laughs> D-Day didn't guarantee, but Jesus does guarantee that that is a victory that will be won, but in the in-between, there's a bloody 
bloody movement of the forces onward. There's a growing reality of, of as, the, as the, the lines moved further and further east, right? Paul, as he wrote this Thessalonians, we've, we've talked about how he's writing to people who, who are trying to figure out what does faith look like in my sex life? What does faith look like in my day job and with my finances, right? What does faith look like uh, when the people who I love die, when they move on, when they're no longer with me? And that's kind of what faith is, isn't it? We go through life and we keep encountering these different situations. And, and each time the question is asked of us, is God still good? Are the promises he made you still what brings you life? Right? Is, is the day that you lose your job, are the promises of God still good? Will you still lean on them? On the day you get your promotion, is, are the promises of God still what's really good? Will you lean on them? When you have kids or when you don't have kids, when you get married or when you don't get married, when you... Uh, are sore after you uh, mowed the yard or, or if you're not sore after you mowed the yard, right? If the promises of God still good. See, he has this line that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. And one of the things that's hardest about this time in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming is, is not whether we'll be with him when we're asleep, when we're dead, but what does it look like to be with him when we're awake? What does it mean to live the life in between? I want to say that, that God doesn't just give us deliverance that turns dread into anticipation, but God's deliverance, the work of God in our life, turns our, our self-help, hobnodged way of going through life, and he turns it into God's way of shaping us, of forming us. Not our preparation, but God's preparation. As I read through these verses, you, you, you hear them, they come rapid fire, right? All these commands, all these things. Uh, respect those who labor among you. Esteem them highly in the Lord. Be at peace among yourselves. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Don't repay evil with evil. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, right? He gives all of this list of goods, and we could probably spend... Uh, the next several months going through these one by one. But there's something that we see here that many of us hear the Christian life and we say, Jesus frees us from our sins. He gives us into a new life, but then we go and we do it on our own. But just in the same way as it was Jesus who brought us freedom, we see there's something else at play in these last chapters, and that is the story of Pentecost. The story of, the, of, of a Holy Spirit that comes upon a, a church community, a Holy Spirit-infused church, a Holy Spirit-infused family. That the, To get from the D-Day to get to the V-E day, God gives his Holy Spirit. If the Christianity you've received celebrates only a death and resurrection, and it doesn't celebrate the coming of a Holy Spirit, you're missing something. You see these words that, at one level, they can sound almost ridiculous to us, right? Rejoice 
always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, right? Every single one of these things is spoken to a, a, a church family, a church family that is uh, uh, infused, is, is like a, a tea bag in a hot water, right? The Holy Spirit is touching and permeating every interaction. And we don't have time to go through them all, but you can see here at the very beginning, and, and, and it talks about uh, the church community, the church family for the Thessalonians, that it ought to be a place where they are receiving God's word, right? Receiving it from their, their pastors and elders, receiving it from words of prophecy, which in, in the first century was something that happened here on a Sunday morning at church. Prophecy was not an individual thing, but it was a corporate worship kinds of thing, right? You were the one who received the holy kiss from the brothers or sisters as they greeted you. But you weren't just one who received, but you were one who gave. Also, we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idols, to, to love uh, those who are faint-hearted, probably those who have lost a loved one, to help the weak, to be patient with them all, to, to bring forgiveness. You see, it was in the context of a community, in the context of a church family, that God by himself does what he says at the end, the God of peace sanctifies, that the God of peace preserves, that the God of peace does this work in your life in the context of a family. But it's not just a family, it is a spirit-infused family. These lines, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, right? Uh, in our world or in, in certain kinds of churches, we read these as purely being individual trademarks, right? I must pray without ceasing, that I must give thanks in all circumstances. But we neglect that this is given to a community, but it's given in something else. These all reflect a, a teaching that we see elsewhere in the book, and we don't have the time to go through it all, uh, but I'll give you this first one. Rejoice always. When Paul opens the letter, he says that I, I rejoice that the, the joy of the Holy Spirit is upon you. Right When he says pray without ceasing, we see in Paul's letters that it is the Holy Spirit that leads us to pray when it is, and teaches us how to pray. When he says give thanks in all circumstances, it is again a work that is tied directly to the Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit who infuses and changes every aspect of our life together. See, we have fear and dread coming before God on his judgment day because we tend to, to neglect the story, to ignore uh, the story that Christ offers us freedom and he offers it for our good and he offers it without cost. But we struggle in the here and the now to believe that the coming of Christ is good because we've isolated ourselves from the spirit-infused family he's given us. The isolated life tells you that you are alone in your sin struggles, that you are alone in, in your disbelief when it comes to sex, that you're alone in your disbelief when it comes to finances, that you're alone when it comes to, to your uh, to your mourning of the loss. It tells you that you are on your own to fix your problems, to, to, to find a way forward, 
But here at the end, even as, as Paul gives so many instructions, so many commands to him, he does it only in the context of a spirit-infused family. And the result, the end of the day is, is what we find in verse 23, a God of peace who by himself, a God of peace himself who makes you look like him who sanctifies you. And it's a God of peace himself who makes your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the God of peace himself who calls you and is faithful. And the God of peace who will do it himself. Sometimes we forget the reality of what God has done in the world. We forget the reality of what God is doing in the world, and we try to, to, to go it on our own. But in our own, we will always find the coming of Christ to be a dreadful thing. But in life with the Spirit, in life with God's people, in life that's in step with the story of what Christ has done, we can find not dread, but anticipation. Pray with me. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has brought us into a family. That while we were in a place where we had no desire to be near you, had no desire to know you, had no desire to be around you, you were the one who found us, who poured out your love on us, who told us the story of how life could really be. Life that's found in you. Life that's found in this world by your spirit. God, lead us into that life, we pray. Amen.